Oh, yay. Oh, yay. This is SCOTUS Talk, a nonpartisan podcast about the Supreme Court for lawyers and non-lawyers alike. Brought to you by SCOTUS Blog. Welcome to SCOTUS Talk. I'm Amy Howe. Thanks for joining us. The Supreme Court is in the middle of its winter recess, but the justices have still been busy. On Monday, a divided court allowed Alabama to reinstate its new voting map, even though a lower court ruled last month that the map likely violates the Federal Voting Rights Act. The case came to the court on the so-called shadow docket, so the justices issued their ruling without briefing or oral argument or even an opinion by the majority explaining the decision. We're grateful to have an expert here with us today to unpack Monday's ruling. Chara Torres-Spelizzi teaches election law and constitutional law at Stetson University's Law School. You should also follow her on Twitter, not only for her legal wisdom, but for her gardening posts and occasional dog pictures. Uh, She has fewer gardening posts these days because she is visiting at American University's Washington College of Law. Not so many flowers blooming in Washington, D.C. these days, but Chara, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So can you tell us a little bit more about the background of the case to start? How and when did the state draw the redistricting map at the center of this case? So uh, if you'll permit me, I wanted to look at the grander constitutional context of the Supreme Court and the way it has at times stood up for the rights of minority voters and at times failed them. So in the grand arc of history, the Supreme Court has often failed minority voters. Uh, In 1884, the Supreme Court declared that Native Americans were not American citizens and therefore were ineligible to vote in Nebraska. In 1903, the Supreme Court failed to stop the wholesale disenfranchisement of Black men in Alabama in a case called Giles versus Harris. In 1935, the Supreme Court upheld an all-white primary in Texas in Grovey versus Townsend. And more recently, the Supreme Court gutted Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act in Shelby County versus Holder, which prevented racist election laws from going into effect. So I think in the popular imagination, the Supreme Court is still the Warren Supreme Court, which upheld voting rights and cared deeply about racial equality. But that anomaly is miles away from where we are with the Roberts Court today, which seems to give short shrift to voting rights, especially voting rights of minorities. Now, to answer your actual question, uh, this case, Merrill versus Milligan, originated with Alabama drafting its new congressional districts. This was done after the 2020 census. Uh, After the census, states have to reapportion and redistrict so that their districts, either for their state house or for the House of Representatives, have equal population. But that also invites potential for mischief. And one of the ways that a state legislature can change the district lines is to favor a particular racial group or to favor more frequently their own political party. And so in this case, the procedural history is a little bit complicated, but 
why was this case before a three judge court rather than going sort of through the traditional district court, court of appeals, Supreme Court track that, which is how many cases arrive at the Supreme Court? Under the Voting Rights Act, uh, cases about redistricting typically start with a three judge panel uh, at the district court level. And then that can be appealed to the Supreme Court directly, which is how we get this case on the shadow docket. And then talk a little bit, if you will, because I think it's actually kind of an interesting data point about who was on this three judge court. So this uh, three judge panel uh, included Stanley Marcus, who is an 11th Circuit judge. He was appointed by President Bill Clinton. Anna Menesco, uh, who is a district court judge who was appointed by President Trump. And Terry Moore, another district court judge who was appointed by President Trump. And what exactly did the lower court say? Uh, the lower court said that Alabama's congressional map likely violated the Voting Rights Act because it should have had two majority-minority districts, and the map only had one. Right. Um, so, the, so, then this, so then the state went to the Supreme Court, asked the Supreme Court to put that lower court order on hold while it appealed, and the Supreme Court said yes, effectively reinstating the map that Alabama had drawn for the 2022 elections. Were you surprised by that order? So I am primarily a campaign finance lawyer. And in my area of the law, the Roberts Supreme Court has already done enormous damage. So as I wrote about in my book, Corporate Citizen, I'm only surprised when the Supreme Court comes out with a pro-democracy opinion. And so this opinion reinstating the bad Alabama map was consistent with their overall anti-democratic small d trend. Right, so Justice Kavanaugh's concurrent opinion, so and just to flesh this out a little bit, the majority, you know, there were five justices voted to reinstate the map that Alabama had drawn. There were four dissenters. The, the majority itself didn't write an opinion explaining why they were doing what they were doing. But Justice Kavanaugh wrote a concurring opinion that explained at least what he was thinking and responded to the dissent by Justice Elena Kagan. And he relied in part on something called the Purcell Principle. And Normally, I don't like to get too far into the weeds on legal doctrine, but I feel like this is an important one to actually get into the weeds on because I feel like it's something that we could be hearing a lot about both in the 2022 election and in the 2024 election. So can you say a little bit about what the Purcell principle it is and how Justice Kavanaugh said it applied to this case? So the Purcell principle is the idea that federal courts should not change election rules very close to an election. And Justice Kavanaugh, in his concurring opinion, relied on the Purcell principle for why it was appropriate in this particular case to stay the district court's opinion. So the district court 
would have thrown out Alabama's map, which only had one majority minority district. But the Supreme Court has stayed that opinion, which means that uh, Alabama's map with the sole Black majority district in terms of their congressional seats will go into effect for the 2022 electoral cycle. And Kavanaugh's reasoning was that the primary is less than two months away if you count the day that absentee ballots go out. The dissenters disagreed uh, and the way that they look at the, the timeline is that the general election in Alabama is actually nine months away, which would give ample time to redraw maps in a way that conformed with the Voting Rights Act. So how does that, like, how does that timeline compare with other elections in which the court has or has not allowed federal courts to intervene? Like in terms of sort of Supreme Court time, is that actually a lot of time or not that much time? Well, the courts uh, can, and thus they can require states to act with great alarcity, as in they can require the states to act relatively quickly. And given that redistricting can now be done by computer software, it's not as if you have to have old men in um, uh, visors with smoke curling around them as they hand draw maps that takes you know weeks and weeks. We, we have the technology that we can implement new maps with relative speed. And the, I think the problem with the Purcell principle is it's, it sounds delightful on its face that courts should not change the rules of the game when a election is about to happen. The trouble with congressional races is there's always an election that's about to happen because they happen every two years. And so there's this Goldilocks problem that litigators are finding in the voting rights area where in some cases, they are told when they are challenging a particular voting law that it's not ripe, as in they have filed a case too early. And then in the very next breath, in a very similar case, you will have a federal court or even the Supreme Court say that actually, under the Purcell principle, this is too soon. So it becomes this impossibility of how do you litigate these cases in a way that satisfies the ripeness doctrine as well as the Purcell principle? Because this case was filed right after the new maps went into effect, right? Yes. Um, I don't think there is anything that these plaintiffs could have done better. Uh, they did not uh, delay, so we don't have an argument that latches should apply, which is basically the legal way of saying you, you dilly-dallied, you, you, you didn't take uh, enough, you, you didn't act quickly enough. And that was not the issue with these plaintiffs. Uh, almost as soon as the Alabama maps came out, they filed objections to the new map and the objection was pretty straightforward. 
they thought that there should be two majority minority districts in Alabama, given the population and the population density at issue. And even uh, Chief Justice Roberts said that the plaintiffs were, you know, and the court, the lower court, were correct in applying the Supreme Court precedent on vote dilution cases, which is what this cause of action was. And it just, you know, didn't matter to the majority of the Supreme Court. And the consequence of that is voters in Alabama, especially Black voters in Alabama, uh, will really uh, practically only have the ability to elect one member of Congress when, if you looked at their demographics, they probably should have been entitled to elect two members of the Alabama delegation. That leads into, in a way, to my next question. Justice Kavanaugh said in his concurrent opinion that Supreme Court's not weighing in on the merits of the state's claims, but in terms of what this ruling means for other states, for other vote, vote dilution claims, and for the Purcell principle, and you've addressed this to a certain extent already in terms of talking about the Goldilocks paradox. You know, if there are other challenges to redistricting plans or to vote dilution claims, what does this, what does this case mean? Does it stand as, as precedent? So it doesn't bode well for every other litigation that is challenging redistricting on Section 2 voting rights grounds. Uh, If the Alabama case is uh, too close to an election, then states that were either slower than Alabama in getting their maps out or plaintiffs that were slower than these plaintiffs in challenging their a particular map, or you know, sometimes the timing of this is really not in the plaintiff's hands. Different judges, different courts do things at a different pace, but I think a fair way to read what the Supreme Court did here is that they will not let federal courts enjoin offensive maps for the 2022 election. Turning back to the substance, Justice Kagan in her dissent said that the decision to put the lower court's order on hold reflects a hastily made and wholly unplanned prejudgment that it's ready to change the law. And in his dissent, the Chief Justice said that the lower court applied existing voting rights law properly, but he said there's a lot of uncertainty and we should clarify it. So I think I know the answer or what you, you your answer is likely to be. Is the court ready to change the law based on, on what, what it did in this case? Uh, I think I'll, I'll duck that question because that's okay. a question that only the justices themselves can answer. Uh, you know, from the outside looking in, it doesn't look particularly promising for the future of the Voting Rights Act, but ultimately this is in the hands of our nine sitting justices We have six conservatives and three liberals and the conservative end of the court, which is now to the right of Chief Justice Roberts, 
seems uh, prepared to do great damage to the Voting Rights Act. So you worked for Senator Richard Durbin of Illinois, who on Tuesday, the day after the court's ruling in the Alabama case, gave a speech that criticized the court's decision and talked about a role for Congress in making changes to the Voting Rights Act. What role is there for Congress on voting rights? So uh, I guess, <laughs> number one, I worked for Senator Durbin 20 years ago. So uh, fair enough. I, fair enough. anything I say should not be held against Senator Durbin. Uh, and moreover, Congress has an enormous role under the elections clause in setting the time, places, and manners of federal elections. Uh, they can supersede state law uh, on questions of how you run a federal election under that clause of the Constitution. Now, unfortunately, the Congress has been a bit stymied of late, at least in the Senate. Uh, there have been several different voting rights bills that have been pending in the Congress. They passed the House uh, very quickly uh, with majority Democratic support. But in the Senate, they are facing uh, the filibuster. And so far, the, there has not been an appetite to change the filibuster in order to improve voting rights. And until there's some filibuster reform, there is unlikely to be voting rights reform. But uh, you could do a number of things through federal voting rights uh, legislation, whether it's making election day a federal holiday. So workers don't have to choose between working and voting. Uh, you could change uh, aspects of the coverage formula that was in the original Voting Rights Act, which is, was struck down by Shelby County versus Holder. And if you got the coverage formula back, then you could have preclearance of voting rules by the states, which would mean that racist new laws wouldn't go into effect. And we wouldn't be in the position where we are now, where plaintiffs can only litigate after a bad law has already gone into effect. What other voting rights cases, or for that matter, campaign finance cases, are you watching right now? Well, uh, I am watching the Ted Cruz campaign finance case. Uh, yes. Uh, uh, I always take the lesson from Watergate that if you want to know what's happening in American politics, then you have to follow the money. Uh, it is uh, the money in our elections that attract voters. And in terms of another you know, big picture, it is really distressing as someone who works on election law to see American democracy in such a fragile place, given the events of January 6, uh, 2021, and its aftermath. And it it's not encouraging that the Supreme Court looks like it is kicking democracy in the shins when it's already down. 
Professor Chara Torres-Felizzi, thanks so much for joining us. Of course. Thank you. That's another episode of SCOTUS Talk. Thanks for joining us. And thanks to our production team, Katie Barlow, Eleanor Erskine, Angie Goh, and James Ramoser.